Hello, I'm Stephen Goodrick and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Neurology. Joining me today is Dr. Jonathan Rohrer from the Dementia Research Centre at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery here in London. Dr. Rohrer, many thanks for joining us today. Thanks for asking me, Steve. So we're going to discuss your research article on pre-symptomatic cognitive and neuroanatomical changes in genetic frontotemporal dementia, and we're also going to discuss your review of C9 ORF72 expansions in frontotemporal dementia and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So both of these articles are published in our March issue. So let's start with some background. So the hexanucleotide repeat inclusions of C9 ORF72 were first discovered in 2011. Why was this such a pivotal point in neurodegenerative research? So we've known for many years that there's an overlap between frontotemporal dementia, STD, and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS. But this discovery of hexanucleotide repeat expansion in C9072 being a cause of both of these conditions really provided this very clear molecular link. Furthermore, early studies showed that these expansions in C9072 in fact, the most common genetic cause of both STD and ALS. And this created a, a real buzz in both research fields. And it's forced us in the STD and the ALS communities to work much closer together to understand more about the disease process, right from the basic scientific underpinnings of how the expansion cause STD and ALS, right through to detailed clinical phenotyping of, of people who carry the expansion. So if someone is identified as having a C9ORF72 expansion, what do we know about how this affects their disease course, prognosis and treatment? Well, the prognosis is quite variable. Some people have a very rapidly progressive illness over a few years. Others have a very prolonged survival, living for over 20 years with very slow progression over that time. And the clinical presentation itself can be pretty heterogeneous. So some people develop frontotemporal dementia, some people develop amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, others develop both together, and we just don't still understand why that's the case. One of the things we have seen is that people with ALS due to a C9072 expansion are more likely to have cognitive impairment than people without the expansion. And people with both FTD and ALS are more likely to develop odd symptoms like hallucinations or delusions, to the extent actually that some people have even received psychiatric diagnoses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder at first. And interestingly, this variability doesn't seem to be related to the length of the repeat expansion or any other genetic factors that we can be completely clear about. So we clearly have a, a lot of work to do to understand this better. And actually, this is really important in the clinic. At the moment, it's just really hard to give people information about what's going to happen to them, what symptoms they're going to develop, how long the disease is going to last for. And so there's still a, a lot to do. This leads me on to ask, are there any ethical implications for screening people at risk of these expansions? And how should physicians counsel people who are at risk? I think that's a difficult question. There are still lots of uncertainties. There are two key factors that play into this. Firstly, quite a number of research groups have now reported finding not just one, but two pathogenic mutations in the same person. For instance, um, finding not only a C9 or 22 expansion, but finding a proganulin mutation, both of which 
a pathogenic, and this makes cancelling just extremely challenging. Secondly, lots of groups have also reported that they've found C9 or 72 expansion in a substantial number of people who seem to have sporadic non-familial disease. And this raises the question of whether we should actually cancel everyone with FTD and ALS for a possible genetic cause. And I think there just isn't a definitive answer to this at present. We really need to be doing further studies that can help inform us, particularly those of us that are, are in the clinic, seeing these people more clearly about what we should be doing. How can the knowledge that we've accumulated on these mutations be used to identify and trial any potential treatments? So probably one of the key findings over the last 12 months um, has come from a series of studies investigating the mechanism of neurodegeneration um, in C9 or 72 expansions. And it appears that a series of what are called dipeptide repeat proteins are generated by a very unusual form of translation of the repeat expansion. And it appears that these are the direct toxic species that cause neurodegeneration. And actually, this leads to a really promising and possible treatment for them. There's something called antisense oligonucleotide, which actually can try and prevent this abnormal translation of the C9072 repeat expansion. And so there's a lot of work going on around these kind of molecules. Our major interest in clinical research is working out what kinds of biomarkers we can use to understand when we should be treating people and how to actually monitor that treatment when we give it to them. So I think both from the very basic science point of view, but also from our clinical research, there's lots of promising things, but certainly a lot of work to do. Okay, so moving on to your research paper. This is an analysis of data that's been collected from the Genetic Frontotemporal Dementia Initiative. Could you tell us more about this initiative, such as who is involved and what are the aims? Yeah, so the Genetic FCD Initiative, or GenFee as we call it, is a multi-centre study and it's brought together research centres who have an interest in genetic FCD from all the way across Europe and Canada. We've had 11 centres recruiting subjects. Both subjects entered the study in early 2012 and our aim was really to study mostly pre-symptomatic at-risk members of families with genetic FCD, so people with mutations in progranulin, tau, or the C9072 gene. All of these people were first-degree relatives of symptomatic carriers, but we did also study the symptomatic carriers as well. I think the most important aim of the initiative was really to see whether we could actually do this study and get together as quite a diverse set of research centres to uniformly study genetic FCD by harmonising our assessment and all trying to do the same thing. By doing this, we were hoping we would try to improve our understanding of the natural history of FTD right away from this early pre-manifest period, many years before symptom onset, right the way through to established disease, and particularly focusing on imaging and cognitive measures. So what were the main findings of your article, and what are the next steps for the Genetic Frontotemporal Dementia Initiative? So I think our, our main findings are that we identified both structural imaging and also cognitive changes in those that carry the mutations well before their expected symptom onset. So for the cognitive test, this was around five years before expected symptom onset. And for the structural imaging changes, that was about 10 years before onset. And interestingly, the imaging study showed that there was a sequence of changes in atrophy through the brain, starting with the insula, followed by the temporal cortex, and then frontal and subcortical areas, the formal 
posterior cortical areas. And I think even more interestingly, a sub-analysis of the individual genetic group showed that this sequence was actually different for the different mutations. So with tau mutations showing very early hippocampal and amygdala atrophy, progranulin mutations having the earliest change in the insula, and C9-or-72 expansions having really very early changes in subcortical areas like the thalamus, as well as more posterior cortical areas. And with our next steps are, are really to see whether these results can be confirmed in a longitudinal study. So this was all cross-sectional data. We also like to look at other biomarkers. So we focused here very much on structural imaging and on cognitive testing. But actually, we'd like to look at different imaging modalities like fusion tensor imaging and tau pet imaging, and also to do more work on some of the fluid biomarkers in serum and spinal fluid. And our hope is that we might even find even earlier changes than those we've seen here in this study with structural and cognitive measures. And just to finish off, I mean, you've already mentioned the potential of antisense oligonucleotides as potential treatments. What other future directions for research into C9 ORF72 expansions are going on at the moment? So there's a huge amount of work in C9 ORF72, both in the STD and ALS community. And there are some key things, I think. We need to understand a bit more about the relationship between actually the length of the repeat expansion and the clinical phenotype. And there's certainly more work to be done on clarifying the mechanisms of neurodegeneration despite all the amazing studies that have been done in the last year. In Gen C, as I said, the earliest changes in brain atrophy appear to be seen actually over 20 years before expected symptom onset. I think we need to see if this is replicated in other studies, and if so, what it represents, because certainly if it's true, it means that ideally we'll need to be targeting any disease-modifying therapies to people in this pre-symptomatic stage well before they're likely to develop symptoms if we are actually going to treat this disease to the best of our ability. Dr. Rora, many thanks for talking to us today. Great. Thank you very much for asking me. This is Stephen Goodrick saying goodbye until the next time.